people, what's up? Thank you for checking us out, Real Not Rude. Don't forget that you can find us on Facebook and Twitter under Real Not Rude and on Instagram under Keep It Real Not Rude. Also, we are on all the platforms. Our podcast is on Amazon as well as Audibles. We are on Apple Podcasts, iHeart Podcasts, and of course, Spotify Podcasts. Please, you guys, follow us on social media, like, share, engage, you know, follow us, please, so that our audience can grow and pass the word. In addition, we also still do our shows where we have the discussions on relationships, friendships, situationships, whatever. And if you would like to be a part of that, definitely shoot us an email. All you need to join is your email address and your name and only your first name or even a nickname. Drop us a discussion that you would like to go over and we will definitely get back to you and let you know if it's something we can include. That's at keepitrealnotrude at gmail.com. Once again, you guys, thank you for listening. Thank you for your support. Be safe and check us out. Hey y'all, what's up? I'm back, Real Not Rude, back with another When Friends Go Wrong. So today, we have three offenders. The main offender, Michael Sanders. His accomplices, William Gray and Rory Nelson. Now, the victim was not named. And later on in the trial, he does make a statement that makes me think possibly that is the reason that he did not want his name disclosed. It is not confirmed, but it's an assumption. So when we get to that point, I will pinpoint it. Now, in addition, pay close attention to the street names in the beginning because the street names connect you to the original crime that unfolds. So Michael is friends with the man. And because his name is not disclosed, everywhere I saw them reference him, they referenced him as the man. So we will too. So they're friends, and on this particular day, the man goes to Michael's home on Sherrill Drive to pick up money that Michael owed him. Now, he said when he got there, two other men came out of the house with guns. So he asked Michael, hey, what's going on? And Michael instructed him, come back in 15 minutes, and I'll have your money then. Now, I don't know about you, but if you're my friend, and I come to your home, and I see two people come out of your home with guns that I don't know, I'm going to be like, hey, girl, are you okay? And do you want to roll out with me? Let's go. And if you act like you're cool with the situation, I'm not returning. Absolutely never. Western Union me my money and handle your business with them however you choose. But that's just me. The man did return at 945 that evening. So he was driving on Gleason Drive and started to turn onto Sherl Drive, which is Michael's home, his street, and he sees while he's turning onto Sherl Drive, two men in Michael's driveway. So probably the same two men he saw earlier, right? When he sees them, Michael and one of those men, Rory Nelson, start firing at him. And he said maybe like 30 rounds. So he fled the area super quick and contacted the Rantoul, Illinois police. So he shows them the bullet holes in his car. And he also tells them that he wasn't hit by the fire, gunfire. But a few minutes later, the police get a call to a house on 1400 Gleason Drive. That's the street he was driving on before he turned on to Michael Street. 
When they get there, they find a 16-year-old girl bleeding from a hole torn in her left forearm by a bullet. So they're trying to figure out how did she get shot. So they find out that the shot came from outside, pierced her bedroom wall, entered her arm, and was deposited on her bedroom floor. So they started canvassing the neighborhoods, and they found 20 casings from three different caliber guns in Michael's driveway. So Michael and his two accomplices, all three of them, are firing on the man, obviously to kill him. Now, fortunately, not only was he not killed, he was not even injured. Unfortunately, the young girl was injured. However, it was not deadly. She was okay. Later on in the trial, they do show pictures of her with the hole bleeding and even, you know, her sitting on the kitchen floor in a pool of blood. But she was okay. So later on when the trial is proceeding, the man testifies that in addition to that shooting, six weeks after that, and the first shooting took place in October, this six weeks after that in November, the man was driving on Sh in Champaign, Illinois with Michael's wife and son when he saw a vehicle come up beside him. He said that Michael was in the passenger side and fired a gun at his vehicle. So he reported that incident to the Champaign police who found four 40 caliber shell casings on the overpass when they went to that area to investigate. Now they never mention a motive on why Michael is doing this, but I wondered when I read that the man was with his wife and daughter and son in the car, if that had anything to do with it, including the money, you know, typically it is relationships and money, right? It never says that, but I did wonder because I'm almost positive, I don't know this for sure, that the man had to see when he pulled up on the side of him, his wife and son were in that car. And he probably followed him anyway, right? How did he know where he was? So you also have no regard for your wife. So I'm thinking he's angry maybe about that as well. I don't know. It's just my assumption. So they are investigating this crime and they're investigating and they start researching the bullets, right? So the state crime lab determined that the casings came from the same gun that was fired before in front of Michael's home. So now Michael... The gun that you used to fire when you pulled up on the side of him and the gun you used in front of his home are the same gun. So we know it is absolutely you, right? So now we get to the court. And when we're in this trial and we're in the court, the man tells the judge and the jury, I don't want to be testifying against Michael, not only because I consider him a friend, but because I'm cooperating with the police, and that's not considered acceptable in my community. So that's the part where I think possibly might be why his name is not publicly disclosed, because maybe he did not want to be labeled a snitch or didn't want any type of retaliation. It doesn't say that, but I'm just thinking possibly. He went on to say, I love Mike. It's hard for me. I love the man, his kids, his family. I don't want him to be in jail for the rest of his life. That is so sad because that must have been, 
you have to be really torn because you think this person is your friend, but this person tried to kill you. And you know you have to testify against this person, but you're struggling with what you remembered him as, a relationship as a friend, someone that you thought you could trust. And now you got to put this person behind bars for the rest of their life for trying to murder you. And in addition, you know how that's going to impact the family as well. I really felt for the man when I read this part. I thought, like, that's kind of tough. I couldn't imagine being in that situation. So they had to redirect him back to the night of the shooting as he's testifying because he was so hung up on, I don't want to be doing this. But when he started getting cross-examined by the public defender, he put his head in his hands and said, I just want this to be over. I don't feel too good. So they actually had to delay the trial until the next day because the man had to be taken to the hospital for chest pains. Now, I'm assuming his chest pains were anxiety because they never said he had a heart attack. And in addition, I don't think he would have returned to trial the next day if he had a heart attack. So when he's back in the trial and they're once again trying to get him to testify, he says to the public defender, I don't want to pursue this anymore. And so when the public defender would start asking him questions, he decided to start saying, I don't remember. So they had to do a recess and remind him, you are under oath. And that apparently really helped him get himself together because he returned to the stand and he started answering all the questions put before him. Now, before the trial began, Michael told the judge that he rejected a plea agreement that would have capped his sentencing recommendation at 15 years in prison and would have dismissed two other cases in which he was charged with attempted murder of the same man on a different date and possession of a controlled substance. I think it's very unfortunate for him that he rejected that plea agreement because what he was facing was way worse than that. And that would have let him have a different outcome. But anyway, the assistant state's attorney said that they would not even be trying those other cases in light of the verdicts for this current case. So other testimony came forward from the officers who did the investigation. So they retrieved evidence from Michael's driveway, from the car in his driveway, from his home, and from the home where the girl was shot. So in addition to the bullet that went through the girl's arm, they found a projectile lodged in the living room wall. Now, the shots in the house came from a 9mm gun and a 40 caliber gun. The girl had been wounded with a 9mm gun. So that goes to show you she could have been really fatally wounded by either of those bullets because the other bullet was in the home too. Now, in the driveway of Michael's home on Cheryl Drive, they found 13 casings from a 9mm gun at the end of the driveway, five from a 25 caliber casings in the middle of the driveway, and five from a 40 caliber gun in the upper part of the driveway. I mean, I'm sorry, casings. This is, they're all over the place. I mean, they're standing in the, the end of the driveway, the middle of the driveway, the upper part of the driveway, all blasting at the man. They could have hit anyone. They could have even hit each other. 
Instead, they're just, these bullets are flying all over, it sounds like, and it hits this girl. And it's a miracle that it was not worse than just a wound in the arm. So another officer searched the car that was in the driveway, and it also had a gunshot in it. And inside the car, they found a backpack that contained two 40 caliber bullets. Also, in Michael's home, three different kinds of ammunition and mail addressed to him was there. So all of the ammunition from all three of the guns, most likely, it doesn't specify that, but it alludes to that. So we're going to assume that all that ammunition was there in the home. You know, the bullets, he obviously wasn't thinking. First of all, you're blasting at someone from your own driveway. And then in addition, you're shooting your own car. I mean, just, this is the most outlandish plan. It's just ridiculous. I mean, just not very bright. And this man is 50, I think he was 55, 56, you know. Anyway, Michael's defense attorney had her office investigate and they were testifying at the trial because they went to the crime scene a year to the day after the shooting. Now, I don't know why they waited a whole year, but it doesn't matter. So the investigator said what they wanted to see is if Michael could be seen, him and his accomplices, from the distance that the man said that they were shooting at him. Because they wanted to say that he couldn't see who was shooting at him for sure. So the investigator testifies that the area is poorly lit and that he was unable to identify people in Michael's driveway from the intersection where the man who was shot at said he saw the shooters. In addition, the defense attorney said that there were plenty of inconsistencies in the statements to police made by the man who was shot at and that it was unlikely that he could see much of anything from where he was. She also said the state had not proven that Michael was the person who actually did the firing and that the alleged victim has all sorts of reasons to assume that's who he saw. Well, yeah, duh, okay. He's going back to Michael's home and they're shooting from his home. Even if he couldn't see the faces, which obviously he did, he knows that Michael was there and with those other men shooting at him. So yeah, I think there is all sorts of reasons to assume that it was him. You know, so it makes just absolutely no sense. Her defense is just, I don't know, it's ridiculous. So Michael's daughter also testified that her father told her that sometime between 5 and 7 p.m. on the day of the shooting in Rantoul, Illinois, that's where his home was, that he was going to Chicago. But the defense, I'm sorry, the prosecution had a rebuttal evidence because they had what they always have, cell phone records. So the cell phone expert testified that Michael's phone was communicating with a cell phone tower in Rantoul just near the shooting between 9 and 10 p.m. So he absolutely could not have been in Chicago. But he claimed to the police he was in Chicago all day. Now, in addition, the day that he shot at the car, that was in November, a month later, Sanders' wife was with him. Remember, Michael's wife was with the man and his child. They were in the area of Champaign, Illinois. 
And how do they know for a fact that Michael was in that area too? Because Michael called his wife's phone right after the shooting and his phone pinged in that area. So both times, Michael's phone is telling them he's right at these shootings. So now in closing arguments, the prosecutors told the jury that no matter who fired the shots that hit the man's car or the teenager girl, they were all equally guilty of the crimes. Multiple shots were fired, and the only reason they were fired was to kill somebody. And that makes the most common sense ever on the face of the earth. All three of them are shooting, so all three of them should be responsible. They're fortunate nobody died, and it really doesn't matter, like he said, who was shooting and which one shot where. They didn't know what they were doing. That's why it ended up lodged in the house, in someone's arm, in a car. I mean, they didn't even probably mention the rest of the places. So, Michael was convicted of attempted first-degree murder and aggravated battery with a gun. But he was acquitted on a third charge of aggravated discharge of a firearm. Now, they presume the mixed verdicts suggest that the jury believed that Michael was present with the other two shooters, but they couldn't be certain who fired which of about two dozen shots from three guns. But that doesn't make sense to me that that even matters because they know that three guns fired. So one person wasn't holding two guns. There were three people shooting. But anyway. He faces between 21 to 45 years in prison for the attempted murder. And in addition, likely, he'll do 6 to 30 for the shooting of the teen to be served after the 25, 21 to 45. So basically, he's going to be there for the rest of his life. The other two men, Nelson and William Gray, were still awaiting their charges, their trial and the same exact charges and sentence. So this story is sad. They're all sad. But what saddened me the most is when the man has such a hard time telling the truth at the trial because he cared about this man and his family to the degree that he got chest pains. I mean, imagine how he must have felt knowing that his, fan, his friend tried to straight take him out. I mean, assassinate him, not just even himself. He wanted to be sure he was dead dead because he had three people shooting at him. And still, this man is so game goofy, he couldn't even kill him with three people. Not that I wanted him to die, but I'm just saying, he was just a reckless mess. Very unfortunate that this went like this. And I don't know if it was over the money because we know he probably never got his money, right? Or if it was over the money, the wife and the child. I don't know. It doesn't say. It doesn't really matter. Because now you don't have the money because you're in prison. And you don't have the wife or the child. So now everybody else is suffering, basically. Another story of when friends go wrong, you guys. Thank you so much for listening. Please pass the word. Like and share. It really helps build the audience. And don't forget, Facebook and Twitter, Real Not Rude. Instagram, Keep It Real Not Rude. 
And also email us at keepitrealnotrude at gmail.com. Don't forget we're on all the platforms. So wherever you listen to your podcast, you will find us there. Be safe.